Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of A Health Podacy. This interview with CMS's Liz Fowler was conducted by Alan Weil on June 3rd, 2021. It's part of a new speaker series from Health Affairs uh, where we focus on in-depth conversations with influential health policy experts in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Now, this is a live interview, and with that comes all the trappings of a live recording. So some of the audio might sound a little different to regular A Health Podacy listeners. If you want to know who's up next on our speaker series, subscribe to our Health Affairs Today or Health Affairs Sunday update newsletters. And with that, let's start the show. Hello, I'm Alan Weil, Editor-in-Chief of Health Affairs. Welcome to today's Policy Spotlight a new series of virtual events featuring in-depth conversations with influential health policy experts in Washington and around the country. We're thrilled to have Liz Fowler as our first Policy Spotlight guest. The Policy Spotlight series is one of many changes we made at Health Affairs in the wake of the COVID pandemic. The pandemic hit the United States just as we were about to hold an in-person event in conjunction with our March 2020 issue focused on the Affordable Care Act at 10. We canceled that event and all of them since. And as we considered rescheduling it, we thought, why not take from what we've learned over the past year and do something different? The result is Policy Spotlight with a shorter virtual format that looks forward toward emerging issues. We're grateful to the Commonwealth Fund and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for their support of the original ACA at 10 issue and their willingness to work with us as we revised our plans a few times. And I'm thrilled to announce we have more than 1,700 people registered for this event, and it's being broadcast by C-SPAN. So now to our event. Liz Fowler is the newly named Deputy Administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, and Director of its Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. Liz's portfolio is broad, but I'm going to focus my questions primarily on CMMI, which is such an interesting and unique enterprise within the federal government. CMMI was established in Congress, uh, in, by Congress in 2010 as part of the Affordable Care Act with the goal of identifying ways to improve healthcare quality and reduce costs in Medicare, Medicaid, and the Children's Health Insurance Program. To do this, CMMI develops and tests new healthcare payment and service delivery models designed to reward healthcare providers for delivering high quality and cost-efficient care. Now, anyone who works in healthcare knows any of a number of the models that are uh, led by CMMI. They range from the Medicare Shared Savings Program, where accountable care organizations reside, to the State Innovation Models Program, which enabled states to pursue multi-payer reforms, to the Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative, supporting primary care practice transformation. And the list goes on. Bundled payments, the Quality Payment Program, which is the physician payment model for Medicare that replaced the sustainable growth rate, and more and more. Now, as I mentioned, Liz Fowler is an old friend. We've worked together at various stops along our career paths, most notably when she was chief health counsel for the Senate Finance Committee during the drafting of the Affordable Care Act, and as special assistant to President Obama at the National Economic Council during the law's implementation. Most recently, she was executive vice president of the Commonwealth Fund. She was a contributor to our issue on the 10th anniversary of the ACA, And I was a member of a task force that issued recommendations for the future of payment and delivery system reform, drawing upon a decade of evidence from value-based care initiatives. I think it's great to 
end the introduction with where Liz began her career, which was at CMS. Of course, back then it was called the Healthcare Financing Administration. My Project Hope colleague, Gail Walensky, was the HICFA administrator. So Liz, it's great to have you back at CMS, and it's great to have you as our first Policy Spotlight guest. Happy to turn it over to you for a few minutes of early observations before I ask you some questions, Liz. Well, thanks for the introduction, Alan, and thanks for the opportunity to be part of this series to talk about the Biden administration's priorities, particularly as they relate to payment and delivery system reform and equity. And I might add that your introduction included enough detail that you could figure out my age if you really counted backwards, but that's okay. Um, I've been at the CMS Innovation Center for three months now, and every day I feel lucky to have the opportunity to serve in this role. The team at CMMI are among some of the most talented and dedicated people I've worked with, and I feel like I learn something from them every day. And I'm really glad that now we have a CMS administrator after the Senate confirmed Chiquita brooks Lashure last week. Our new administrator has a very deep and long background in policy, and I am really looking forward to working under her leadership. So it's really a critical time for our healthcare system. We are at a crossroads in value-based care. We've been on a path to move the system from volume um, and towards value. And now we have 10 years of experience under our belt testing these alternative payment models, many of which you mentioned. And by the way, a couple you mentioned are actually not CMMI. And, and so if there's anyone listening from other parts of CMS, uh, they might take umbrage with that. But um, but nonetheless, we have a broad portfolio, but the path is getting murkier. Uh, we've lost a bit of focus in some respects and it's become more comfortable to stay in fee-for-service. So it's really a good time to take stock of how far we've come, where we are today and where we go next. And we're also at a critical moment in our nation's collective efforts to advance health equity. Disparities in healthcare access um, to care have, um, plagued our healthcare system and negatively impacted populations of color for as long as we've had a healthcare system. But COVID has exposed inequities that are impossible to ignore and brought the issue into the mainstream. And with this increased visibility, healthcare stakeholders and policymakers are charging forward with solutions. So it's really heartening to see. And given, given that the health equity and racial justice agenda are a cornerstone of the Biden-Harris administration, we have a real opportunity to make progress on this compelling issue. As the single largest payer for medical, medical services in the US, CMS is a catalyst and a leader. No other payer comes close to matching the influence wielded by our agency and many payers follow our lead. And that means that we are in a unique position to be a healthcare disruptor and a driver for change. And we take that responsibility very seriously. Within CMS, the Innovation Center has a very important role to play. So just a few more remarks and I'll turn it back over to you. Um, to address the twin challenges and opportunities we face, that is accelerating the shift to value and advancing health equity, we've undertaken a strategic review. We've reviewed the lessons from the past 10 years, spoken with many thought leaders and experts, including you, Alan, about their vision for the healthcare system of the future and what it should look like. I won't go into too much detail because I know we'll cover those issues in our discussion, but I do want to add that it's an important part of our vision that will require us to bring high value care to every community in America. We've found that some of our models, for example, communities of color have been touched at lower rates. So we wanna make a conscious effort to expand our reach in underserved communities. I'll stop there and thank you again for the conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity and to talk about our priorities and our path forward. 
Well, thank you for that, uh, those opening remarks. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embellish your already uh, stellar resume. Why don't I start off, Liz, with, as you mentioned, you've, you're three months in, you launched a strategic review of CMMI. Where are you in that process? So I'd say we're in the midst of the process. We have a sense of where we want to go, and we need to spend more time with the incoming leadership in order to land the plane, so to speak. But what I can say is that we're converging on a vision of the healthcare system where the patient is at the center of that system. And that really means shifting from a vision focused on payments and providers to a focus on people. It means that every Medicare and Medicaid beneficiary is in a care relationship that includes meaningful accountability for quality and total cost of care. And that quality measures align with goals that matter to patients and align with patient values. And also it means that there's a continuum of accountable care relationships from a community primary care practice to an ACO or direct contracting entity, a federally qualified health center or a Medicare Advantage plan. And let me also add that I'm really heartened by the renewed interest in advanced primary care and doubling down on the role that primary care can play in a high performing health system. So we wanna make sure all parts of the health system are driving towards the same goal and where people are at the center. Well, just uh, going into detail in what you said in those few paragraphs could probably take us through the hour. So I'm going to get started. Let's do a moment of looking backward before we look forward. Every meeting I went to when CMMI was created used this metaphor. They said, we're gonna throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and we'll see what sticks. And it does in many respects to an outsider seem like that's what's happened. There's been, there've been many different demonstrations in your view, what has really stuck and what is clearly on the floor? I'm sure there's a lot in the middle where we don't know, but what do you see as the guide star of, wow, we tried this and we know we need to do more. We tried this and it's time to walk away. Well, let me first say that the legislative language for CMMI originated from the Senate Finance Committee and, and came out of the legislative text that we were working on when I was a staffer. And Part of the rationale was that um, we asked for ideas on how to reduce costs and improve quality and didn't get enough ideas that could be implemented. And so the idea behind the Innovation Center was really to provide this sort of um, rapid cycle innovation engine for, um, for CMS, for the health system. And I'd say the advice we're getting from across the spectrum is that we need to move away from this spaghetti against the wall or thousand flowers bloom approach um, pick your metaphor, and instead um, double down on what we think is working. That's not to say that the, any of the 54 models that we've invested in were not worthwhile. We have learned something from every model, um, even the ones that were deemed not to meet the statutory standard for expansion. But going forward, as a general principle, I think we want to focus on our investments on um, strategies that are aligned with the overall goal of health system transformation. We really wanna keep our eye on the ball of health system transformation. I think that entails um, clearing a path for innovators, um, pushing the laggards, um, but we also need to reach those who have challenges participating meaningfully. Um, and then of course, as I mentioned, uh, we need to play a role in advancing health equity. So I guess that's not really answering your question of what's stuck and what has fallen to the floor, but um, but I think it's maybe a more conscious choice about where we're making investments and um, to make investments in a way that's maybe more clear and um, meaningful for, 
for those following and those potentially participating? Well, I think it definitely is an answer. Um, you did mention sort of being, uh, if you will, stuck in fee-for-service. And actually one of the questions just came in, someone said, I don't see us stuck in fee-for-service. Where I am, everyone's moving into Medicare Advantage. Um, so I'm wondering if you could uh, both reflect on sort of uh, fee-for-service can be at any point in a payment system. It can be Medicare directly paying fee-for-service, but you can pay a capitated payment to a plan and they can still pay their providers fee-for-service. So how much are you trying to change payment throughout the system? And a related question I would ask is, when you say fewer models, one thing I didn't hear was mandatory versus voluntary. And I wonder if you could reflect on the relative success of those different approaches. Well, I guess I would say that fee-for-service as a, a payment mechanism wouldn't necessarily go away. I think it's hard to see that that's going away. I don't see everyone moving into managed care. Um, but I think by asking the question of, um, is this working for patients? I think we can ask the question of whether or not patients in managed care are really getting that um, overall care coordination that that the plans are, are aiming for and that they advertise. Um, is it really meaningfully coordinating their care and caring for people to the point that we get a better outcome. And then for those who aren't in a managed care relationship, maybe they're in a direct contracting relationship an ACO or advanced primary care, that's not necessarily a capitated arrangement and there may be fee-for-service aspects, but hopefully there's an alignment there where someone's looking out for your care um, in a meaningful way. Um, and, and I think that's that shift is something that is a little bit different than what we've seen. We've, we've measured success in, in, in sort of percent of providers in an APM and percent of dollars going through an APM. I think this is really trying to shift the focus to say, are patients in a meaningful care relationship? Um, so that's how I would describe it. So, so I don't know that fee-for-service is going away completely, as somebody said. Um, as to your question about um, mandatory, I will say that what we've learned from CMMI models over the past 10 years is that voluntary models are subject to risk selection which has a ne negative impact on the ability to generate system level savings. Providers who aren't generating revenue or generating more revenue tend to exit the program. And those who are doing quite well tend to stay. And it's not that they aren't changing care or being successful in other ways, but it hasn't met the statutory standard for reducing system level costs. Um, so we are exploring more mandatory models. And I realize those come with their own set of disadvantages um, and those who follow what we're doing, has you've seen this shift already. Um, it started before I got here, but I support this direction. It's really refreshing to hear you talk about putting the patient at the center. Again, when I think about the CMMI models, they seem very provider-directed, which is understandable. It's how you pay providers. Um, but I'd like you to maybe just expand a little bit more on what you mean when you say patient-focused approach. You talk about uh, people pulling in the same direction. You talk about care being centered around the patient, but it's not all managed care and certainly not all managed care is like that and not all that isn't managed care is like that. So what is it as a patient, what could I expect differently if, my, if the providers taking care of me are part of a CMMI model under your tenure? Well, let me describe what I think it means and then, um, and then what I think maybe patients can hopefully expect. In my mind, um, and as we're exploring these concept, concepts, it means that every 
Medicare and hopefully eventually Medicaid and, and all patients are in a care relationship that includes a meaningful accountability for quality and total cost of care. Um, so somebody uh, is accountable for your quality and also accountable for total spending and total um, outcomes um, in a way that is meaningful to patients. It means that quality measures are aligned with goals that matter to patients uh, or people and aligned with their values, like reducing mortality and improving functional status so that patients can keep up with their grandchildren, for example. And it also means meeting people where they are, so delivering care in homes or communities or the least restrictive setting possible. Most likely it means more virtual care, and we've all seen the benefit of telehealth during the the, during COVID. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, this sort of approach or vision means bringing high quality value-based care to every community. So not just some communities, but we really wanna expand the reach. Um, so I think what it means for patients, hopefully, is that you know who to call, uh, you have trust a trust relationship, uh, that somebody is um, giving you the advice and helping to manage your conditions, um, helping look beyond, hopefully, and again, this is visionary, beyond just your health needs and potentially can help refer you to other needs that impact your health. Um, and I know social determinants of health or structural determinants of health is um, sort of a buzzword now, but you know, in an ideal world, there's there's also referrals and thought to needs that go beyond uh, just clinical needs. So I'm glad you brought up uh, equity in your opening remarks. And I want to ask a few questions, some of my own. And again, they keep pouring in from the outside. I'll try to weave a few of them in as well. Uh, let's start with sort of the basics, which is if you're thinking about a value-based payment program and you have an eye on equity, how do you think differently about the program with an equity lens than if you were just thinking of it without that lens? Well, I'll answer the question from the CMMI perspective. And I think there's a whole effort across the department and across the agency uh, to think about equity and building that aspect into more parts of the program. But let me answer from, from the CMMI perspective. I think the payment and delivery models we develop, test and scale should reduce disparities, not increase them. Um, starting with model development, I think we need to consider that equity is part of every what we call in innovation center investment proposals or ICIPs. And this is the application that goes to the Office of Management and Budget. There should be a section that explains how equity is part of this model. In terms of recruiting participants, who is participating in our models and what is the mix of patients that they serve? Not all institutions or organizations have ready access to capital and the technology that might be required to participate in the models. And similarly, our administrative requirements are sometimes too high for some participants. Overall, we need to do a better job and our model participants need to do a better job of forging relationships and working with community-based organizations. And finally, model evaluation. We need to look more closely at the impact of our, innovation, our interventions by race and ethnicity and make sure that improvements to this health system are benefiting all patients. So we need to be collecting, reporting, and using data on race and ethnicity. And you know, some of this should be a requirement of participating. It also means um, including quality measures, like I said, focused on social determinants and other related needs and outcomes in terms of how we are measuring quality and outcomes. 
We had a recent paper in Health Affairs talking about uh, adjusting quality metrics for risk factors. Um, and I wonder, this is a, a hot topic, a, a much debated topic about whether you hold every entity to the same standards of performance because you demand excellence from everyone, or you say, well, some provider systems treat patients with a higher social burden uh, coming in the door and we can't expect them to go out the door at the same time. Uh, care to weigh in at all on this conversation? On the social determinants of health conversation? Well, on adjustment of, of risk, really, of, of when you're setting goals and metrics, whether uh, it... Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we don't want a different standard where we hold ourselves in terms of the uh, the adjustments. Um, we don't want to let people off the hook and say, well, it's okay because, you know, the expectations are lower. On the other hand, is there a way to reward reaching more patients and doing a better job with them? And, you know, just as an example with risk adjustment, um, and this is um, an example someone else brought to me, but, you know, when you think of some, a patient with diabetes who may need access to, or, you know, may need to start have nutritional needs, some patients may be better able to um, meet those nutritional needs and, and follow the best advice of their doctor than others. And if you if there's an adjustment in there that considers um, ability to, to meet some of these requirements and, and your doctor's orders um, in order to have a better outcome? And where is it more difficult? I think that that ought to be taken into consideration in some way. One question came in that's near and dear to my heart as someone who worked in state health policy for a long time. We used to joke when CMS was created that the one we knew which M was in CMS, even though it says Medicare and Medicaid. CMMI uh, at least has both M's in it. If you're looking at equity, Medicaid is a major player with respect to opportunities for closing gaps. And uh, so the question was whether you envisioned a broadened Medicaid portfolio at CMMI when it, at least to some outsiders, it feels like the Medicare side has been uh, the dominant. Well, I will say that, um, that our authority is broader in Medicare than it is in Medicaid. Um, I don't know if you hear my husband is making a shake downstairs, so you can probably hear the blender. So um, <laughs> I guess that's just the vagaries of working from home, at least the mailman. As, as long as he's sharing, it's okay. <laughs> now I lost my train of thought. You were asking. <laughs> about, uh, you said your 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 legislative scope is broader in Medicare than Medicaid. Yes. That's certainly true. Yes. And uh, but then you were going to go from there. Yes, and I will say the incoming administrator, um, so um, Administrator Brooks LaSure has made it pretty clear that she wants us to explore more opportunities in Medicaid, and, and we will certainly do that, and we've got efforts underway to, to, to look more closely at, at Medicaid models. And, and maybe, this, maybe this point um, expands beyond just Medicaid and, and, and as we think about other payers as well, but when you have a model that that is very prescriptive and and sometimes complex, I think that makes it hard for states to participate. And that's not to say those requirements aren't there for a reason. But I think the same thing with um, with private payers, and we want private payers to join our models. For example, and let me make a plug for for primary care first, where we're still recruiting, and we'd love to have more private payers join us. Sometimes joining our exact models may be challenging. The timelines don't work, or the complexity. So. It would be great to get to a position where we can sort of all be moving in the same direction. All of our oars are in the water and moving in the same, you know, rowing at the same speed. And so we'd like to spend more time 
figuring out how to work with states and I'd say expanding beyond that to consider private payers as well and, per, and purchasers, frankly. Yeah, again, there's so much there to work with that I'd like to follow up on. So you mentioned pulling in the same direction across payers. You also mentioned accountability uh, focused around the patient. Uh, one of the things, and a few questions came in about this, earlier on you said there, you know, there's so many different demonstrations out there and maybe it's time to focus in. It does seem like there's a whole portfolio around primary care that tends toward expansion coordination. A lot of the specialty-focused demonstrations have been very siloed. They're about a particular procedure, set of procedures. And if you're trying to harmonize, the question is sort of how do you bring in what have, again, in my estimation, been historically somewhat siloed specialty demonstrations with a more holistic patient-centered approach at the primary care. How, how do we start thinking of those as one thing instead of two different uh, uh, initiatives? Well, I guess I think that they can be coordinated. And if you think about the specialty models, um, these primary care providers will need strategies and approaches and models for helping to manage episodes of care and, and um, specialty care and Hopefully, some of these models will provide a pathway for that. And these episode models aren't aren't going anywhere. Um, I think they're still very important, and we need to engage across the medical spectrum. So, um, but when you have, for example, I guess I would say, um, if you're going to invest in episodes of care to focus really on the high cost, maybe lower volume um, areas, where primary care would have a harder time managing. Um, instead of, for example, building a diabetes model, which would be something you would expect the primary care um, or the ACO to be managing anyway. So I think we want to make sure that that we're creating opportunities to work together um, in harmony rather than um, sort of detract from one another. And I, you know, Mike Cherno is not on the phone, but <laughs> he, uh, he described it um, in one way to me that I thought was sort of interesting and in that that um, there's so much, um, I guess, excess in the healthcare system um, that reducing waste is has become, waste is like a commodity in a shared savings program. And so now everyone's sort of competing to re reduce that waste. And I think we wanna make sure that there's more alignment and that everyone's trying to reduce waste in a way that's complementary and coordinated rather than sort of competing to see who can capture and pocket the waste. I have a lot more uh, substantive questions, but I want to sprinkle in a few that uh, give us a moment to reset. Uh, and it did sound, by the way, like the dog wants some of that shake. Uh, <laughs> I hope your husband gave gave the dog some. <laughs> I'm struck by your career path. I'm sure you didn't map it out in advance when you started at HICFA those years ago, but you've had private sector experience, you've had government experience, you've had nonprofit experience. It's always, these are always uh, slightly odd questions, but I, I'm just curious what comes to your mind as you've been in these various roles, what's the biggest surprise you've uh, come away with that's shaped your thinking about uh, your current job and the, the job you have to do now? I think in our healthcare system, the system works well sort of for everybody, except sometimes the patients. Um, you know, we have a, a, a healthcare system that spends, you know, 
climbing up towards 20% of GDP. And a lot of there's a lot of parties that benefit um, when healthcare costs go up uh, and when spending goes up, and not a lot who benefit when it goes down. I think that's what we're trying to change. And as we think about value, which is improving quality and reducing costs and improving overall population health, that we really want to move in this direction so that the system starts to benefit patients, that takes some of the friction out of it, that makes it an easier place for for patients. And I guess I've learned something in every role that I've had. I think each experience has been valuable, but I think what has struck me is just uh, how many interests there are in the system and that keep it from moving away from the status quo, um, which is what I think we need to do. Well, that's a very insightful answer, and you'll certainly feel that uh, in your your new role. I've gotten so many questions. I'm not. I'm clearly not going to get through them, but I I want to bring in a few themes that have come up in a number of them. You mentioned early on direct contracting, and I and uh, some folks just were curious what you maybe you could start since maybe not everyone listening really even knows about that initiative and 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 say what you see as the future. Sure. So direct contracting is really a model that sort of, you know, this, well, it, not all of them are even capitated, but at least one part of it is capitated or, or, or partial, partially capitated where we're, the expectation is that primary care providers or providers will be managing um, patients' care and accountable for that total cost of care, as I mentioned, but without the health plan. Um, so sort of directly contracting, if you will, with with the federal government, if I can, or with CMS or CMMI, I can um, explain it that simply. And hopefully if my colleagues are listening that I didn't mess that up too much. I think the the notion um, is, can we get to a point where these practices, these entities are, are um, delivering care um, sort of without that sort of maybe middleman in the middle? Now there's quite say, a- I mean, there are some plans that are, direct contracting entities too. So although some might take issue with that. Yeah. So we have a long history of clinicians, physicians, hospitals saying the insurance company offers little value. We ought to be able to do this ourselves. And my read of the literature is that this is sort of a cyclical phenomenon. Uh, Folks come in and say it, and then lo and behold, it turns out that there are functions that they aren't quite prepared to manage and they tend to fall apart. So how do we uh, get it right this time? Why are we in a better position to get it right this go around? Well, first, that's the benefit of a model is that we're testing it. Um, and so maybe maybe it ends up, you know, in the same, um, with the same result as what's happened before. But I think as I look out, there are disruptors and innovators out there who really want to take on this challenge. Um, I think, and, and this is a point that's been made to me about the direct contracting model is that we need to make sure that there's not a, an unlevel playing field, that there's a level playing field and we're not advantaging some of these disruptors um, over some of the more traditional um, players, but it's an opportunity. And I think, you know, we ought to provide it. And, and, and by the way, this is a concept that started under the Obama administration. It's been developed under the Trump administration and now it's continuing. Um, it was launched a couple of months ago under the Biden administration. So I think there is interest in moving this way you know, we'll see whether it's successful. I, you know, but we keep, we hope so because, um, because I think it could be something that really changes the system. You know, your last uh, answer reminds me that 
when we had the change of administration to the Trump administration, there was, a, of course, a lot during the campaign in opposition to the Affordable Care Act. But people said uh, delivery system reform is a bipartisan issue. Payment reform is a bipartisan issue. And you mentioned some initiatives that began in the Obama administration were continued, extended, expanded in the Trump administration. In your short uh, time, you mentioned interest groups. Uh, do you have a sense that there's a bipartisan force behind what you're trying to accomplish at CMMI that maybe differs from some of the other parts of healthcare that tend to get caught up in partisan battles? I, I believe that there is bipartisan interest in moving towards value-based care, no doubt. But I think we have lost a little bit of the momentum um, across the board. I want to get that momentum back and really start pushing again um, and make it inevitable that we are moving towards value. And I think, and I believe that that is um, a shared goal across the board. I, I will say, I do agree that, um, you know, this part of, of healthcare, there has been more agreement. And I was fortunate to be able to talk to um, previous directors of CMMI from um, every one of them, <laughs> from all four previous um, directors and get their best advice. And a lot of that advice was was largely consistent. And I think that's probably um, not, not always the case. So, um, so I agree with you. And when you talk about losing momentum, I mean, we've just, uh, we're not out of it yet, but we've spent uh, more than a year completely consumed by the COVID pandemic. It's hard to imagine much of anything else gaining traction and you can imagine things slowing down. But one item that came out of the pandemic early on is a shift to telehealth, the dramatic declines in volume, particularly for primary care, where there were huge revenue losses, which created a belief among many that uh, fee-for-service was a barrier to the financial viability of primary care and that we needed to move more to capitation, global payments, uh, whichever term you want to use. So I'm curious when you say you feel like the momentum has been lost, do you think, and you want to restart it, I completely uh, respect that. I guess my question is, uh, what do you really think caused the loss of momentum if it's other than the pandemic that then doesn't sort of naturally return as that gets under control? Are there other forces we need to move? Well, I think, first of all, that's a good question. And I, I actually think that COVID is one of the the forces behind new potentially renewed momentum, because I think, like you said, uh, we did see the limits of fee for service when volume dropped so precipitously, and we did see uh, the need to really think about primary care and reinvesting in primary care. And I think we're starting to see that in articles and reports and white papers and recommendations. Um, so I, I, but I think I guess I would say if you look at some of the 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 payment structures that it is sort of you can hang out in fee for service and i think the penalties for doing so are really not not so great and if you look at the to get too technical the macra payments um, um the mips payments that there's a, a change in the law that's in statute that makes it even more comfortable to stay in fee for service and that may require a legislative change but i think um we need to do what we can in cms and cmmi um to keep that pushing that forward and what, whatever changes we can within our control. But I think Congress may need to also take a look at that. So yes, you're right. COVID has, if anything, sort of restarted the engine, hopefully, or at least provided an opening or an opportunity 
Um, I think the 10 year anniversary of um, the Affordable Care Act and CMMI gives us that additional chance to look back. And, um, and so for these reasons, I think we're really at this really crucial time where we can, you know, push harder and push forward um, as much as we can. I've gotten a lot of questions about mental health. It seems like whenever we have a conversation about healthcare, it goes where it goes. And then someone says, well, what about mental health? And as you've described a broader role for primary care, as we look at equity and inequities, as we look at the drivers of physical health costs, uh, we know as a country, we have huge challenges here. So I wonder if you could talk at all about your sense of where CMMI might make a difference in uh, improving delivery of care, improving coordination between behavioral and uh, physical health, or just expanding access to behavioral services? I mean, it's a good question, and, and we're exploring that question. We're looking for all op, um, opportunities for options. I think it's a big um, it's a big issue, as, as you've noted. It's also really important for Secretary Becerra and for the administration. They've asked us to look uh, down this road and see what opportunities there might be to coordinate care better, to integrate care better. And so I'd say we haven't done enough in that area, and and we've certainly been given the directive to um, to start looking more. Uh, as a journal, we're very focused on evidence, and CMMI has this unique statute about evaluation and and funding for evaluation, the ability to move demonstrations into uh, actual practice. Um, what's your reflection at this point on? our ability to actually determine the effectiveness of CMMI initiatives, both historically, are there changes you'd like to make going forward and thinking about the timeline, the investment? Um, what the, This is a learning agency of government by design, which as I said at the outset, is a, it's a fairly, it's a unique enterprise. Um, so we're doing a lot on the experimentation side um, but I'm curious about what you think about the evaluation side. So first of all, I would say our evaluations are the gold standard. I mean, if you're talking about how to evaluate programs, I think we are extremely unique. We have the ability to have a control, um, which isn't always the case in public policy, um, but we do that. And I'd say our ev evaluation and that team is really top notch. Um, so um, I, I think as you, evaluate under the technical sense of the term, um, what you can sometimes miss is the impact in the system that maybe you're not picking up, um, that maybe some of these changes are bleeding into other practices, other parts of the hospital, for example, that go beyond the, the, the control group and the, and the experiment group. So, and that's harder to pick up, but I think many have made the point to me that we should be considering the impact on the health system um, beyond uh, just the evaluation. I think that could be true. And I think we should look towards transformation broadly. I don't know how you measure that necessarily in a, in a tightly controlled evaluation approach, um, but it's you know certainly a point that's been made to us. It does get back to the notion of making sure that what we invest in is gonna have a transformational impact. I think one other point I'll make um, is that there has been a push to see if we can have results sooner. Um, 
and not wait until the end of a model when it may be too late. When we when we get signals that something may not be working or may need to be adjusted, I think there's been a lot of discussion of how we make those adjustments and how we can do so sort of but keep the but keep our gold standard. So, you know, we're we're looking at all of those things. So I'm really glad you added that at the end of your last uh, answer because I was just about to ask we all like the gold standard, but sometimes maybe the gold standard gets in the way. And if you think about businesses making decisions, they can't always wait uh, for the, the, the weight of the evidence. Um, of course, we're talking about potentially moving billions of dollars in the care of millions of people. So I completely understand the need to go carefully, but this idea of adjusting models along the way uh, or accelerating the timeline of results it does seem like you you began with a sense of urgency, which I completely uh, appreciate and personally agree with. Um, I just wonder if there are places where we shouldn't hold out for the gold standard. Yeah, that's a good question, and that's part of what we're looking at. And you know, I will say the statute is very narrowly um, constructed in how it it measures success. I mean, it really does say, um, are you lowering costs without um, harming quality? Are you improving? quality without um, increasing costs? Or are you achieving both savings and quality improvement? And first of all, some people say we should look over a longer period of time. For example, some of those social determinants or preventive measures might take longer to bear fruit. Um, so that's one issue. And so, so are we not spending enough time or are we um, taking too long? So I think there's a, a lot of contrast in, in some of the advice that we're getting. Um, and then if if everything is geared towards, you know, if if we meet those statutory standards, then we um, then we have the ability to incorporate back into Medicare, for example, if something is working, it can become a permanent part of the program or expanded. You know, we may be learning something for the sake of learning something without needing to use this um, certification standard as as, you know, the ultimate goal. And again, that gets back to are we transforming care? Are we really changing the healthcare system? Because if you're just focused on that narrow goal of certification, you may be sort of missing some of the forest through the trees. And per particularly when you look at you know the 54 models that we've we've tried, um, only four have gone back um, to become part of Medicare. So so I'm not sure that that should be the standard because I think we have had a much bigger impact than than those four um, models might suggest. I think that's really creative thinking. And I'll just say also that the statutory standard may get in the way of your equity agenda, or at least conf be confounded by the equity agenda. And so, although I doubt you would want to explicitly have two separate portfolios, one set that you're doing just to learn and the others with an eye toward meeting the statutory standard, in effect, that is what happens. And it might not be so bad to go in with an eye towards some items that you don't ever expect to reach the statutory standard, but you still think we could learn a lot. That's a nice way to think about it. Um, well, and just got, let me say that yeah. in our current construct, um, you know, that just looks at cost and quality, I would say that health equity is an aspect of quality, that if you're improving equity, you're by that very nature, improving quality. Absolutely. Um, I got a great question where uh, the moment you mentioned uh, centering around the needs of the patient, someone said, uh, what's the role of patient advocacy organizations in building out the agenda for CMMI? And I wondered if you have an answer to that. Well, we've, um, we've done a listening session with some of the um, advocacy groups. I think that's the early step. Um, I think we need to do more of that. I think we do need to make sure that if that's what we're claiming to do, that we are listening 
um, to people and patients and and organizations that re represent beneficiaries. So I would say um, our door is open and we wanna hear from you as we're building out this strategy. We absolutely um, should be doing more of that. Well, I saved some of the juicy topics for the end because, but the number of questions coming in about them makes it impossible for me to ignore them. So uh, you can't have a session in healthcare these days without talking about prescription drug pricing. And I'm not gonna ask you what's the Biden administration agenda on prescription drug pricing, although of course you're free to say that, but I am interested in your sense of CMMI's role with respect to the uh, availability and affordability of prescription drugs. And of course you have your own experience in the private sector that you can bring to bear here as well. So first of all, I would say that um, lowering prescription drug prices is a big priority for the Biden administration. And I think that's been clear through the campaign. That's been clear. Um, it's part of the budget. It's included in the budget. It's something that um, the president and, and officials talk about often. Um, and um, I think he believes that there's a role for government negotiations. So I think he's been pretty clear that this is an issue that he wants to tackle. Um, having spent some time in the industry, it's, it's one of the most difficult um, issues to tackle, and it's not, not so easy. Um, I thought that the previous administration was very creative in a lot of the ideas and, and areas that they were looking at tackling. For CMMI's part, um, the model that comes under our purview is um, the most favored nation model, which says that you know Medicare Part B, and that's the drugs that are um, administered in a doctor's office, um, should be priced based on the lowest price um, in industrialized countries that are comparable or within a certain um, magnitude of our um, GDP per capita. So, um, or at least the top 50 drugs. So that 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 rule was um, published in November, um, set to, was an interim final rule that was um, supposed to go into effect January 1st, but it's been under court injunction. So we have not implemented it. And uh, I think we're, you know, taking a look at, at those concepts. I think, um, I think you can expect that we'll continue looking at this issue. I don't think we're gonna let our foot off the gas, um, but I don't know that it'll take that form. Um, certainly not, we can't because it's in court. Um, I think there's some procedural hurdles that we skipped or the agency skipped in its way to, um, to publishing that. So we're taking a look at the issues. So I think the industry shouldn't, shouldn't sit back and think that things are going to be different or, or um, you know, that, that we're not looking at this. But I think we'd also like to see what Congress does. Um, in my experience and having spent um, a good part of my career on um, in the Senate, I think the, if, let's see what Congress can do, because it's a lot easier to make progress on this issue there. Um, but if, if that's not possible, I think we stand ready to, um, to work with them and, and look and see how far we can get. Uh, another campaign issue uh, was around the public option. And you mentioned support for state initiatives. There are a number of states that are moving forward on this. Uh, from the, again, from an administration and a CMMI perspective, what's your sense of what do we still need to learn? What's the innovation agenda here? And what should we just plow forward and do from the perspective of the Biden administration? Well, that is another campaign issue. It's another issue that's really important to the Biden-Harris administration. And I, um, and I think that's something you can continue to hear 
um, hear about. And um, also I know that that's another issue that potentially comes up uh, in the context of legislation. I think I, there's not enough I can say now, but having worked on that issue um, in, um, in the Senate and you know, as we were exploring whether that could be part of the Affordable Care Act, I think there are questions that you uh, can answer and that states are looking at answer, answering. Colorado, Washington, Connecticut, others, New Mexico, as they look down this path and figuring out what the payment mechanism should be. Is it based on Medicare? Is it based on something else? How do you, how do you set the payments? How do you um, maintain a level of competition or some level of competition and still generate savings? I think there are a lot of unanswered questions, but I also think um, it's an area where we can potentially make progress. Got an intriguing question to come in. Uh, I'll probably not quite do it justice, but many of the innovations you're looking for require investment on the part of providers in new management systems, new contractual relationships. The questioner asked about the role of private investment, private equity, and the like. I'm just going to sort of broaden it out and ask you, what do you see as the role of CMI? And actually, maybe tying it back to your very opening remarks about how some of the models made it through some communities and not others. And particularly, we have evidence to suggest that some of the models go into high resource, high income communities and not others and that may have to do with investment. So how do we make it possible for all parts of the healthcare system to have the financial wherewithal to invest in system improvement and not create a bunch of models that you can only succeed in with investment, but you can only get that investment if you're already at the top of the heap? Well, we have tested um, some aspects of trying to help um, providers with those upfront investments. The AIM model um, that tried to bring providers into ACOs um, with some of that um, funding up front. I think CHART is another one, um, not the rural aspect of it, or not the state aspect of it, but the provider aspect of it that's that's been delayed. We do have some tools to be able to look down that path and, and I think are open to exploring um, other alternatives. So, but I think it's an important question because, you know, not everyone is at the same level and starting at the same place and we need to make sure we're we're bringing everyone along. As we wind down our hour, uh, I just want to ask, uh, going back to my earlier question about your own uh, career, and you mentioned the number of different interest groups involved in policy. Also in this conversation, you've mentioned a few places. We talked about the statute uh, and how it measures success. Uh, we've talked about uh, prescription drugs and public option. Is there a legislative agenda that you can talk about, want to talk about that you feel would improve the ability of CMMI to succeed moving forward. We've gone through such a long period where everything that's a part of the ACA felt like it was fixed and immovable. Uh, I'm not saying legislation's easy, you know that world much better than I do, but at least it seems like it could be contemplated at this point. And without taking on all of health policy, I'm just curious with respect to doing your job and being successful at CMMI, whether they're things that you look at it, the statute now and say, well, given where we are today, it would be better if the statute looked like this. Well, I have my ideas and I don't know that I wanna share them here because I haven't shared them with our new administrator. So uh, <laughs> I don't wanna jump that gun. Um, so I will uh, 
I will maybe demur on that question and uh, defer to a later conversation. But, you know, I do have ideas. I will say that I think we can do a better job of making sure Congress knows uh, where we're going. Um, I think there's been, you know, it feels like maybe some misgivings about, um, you know, the use of this authority and but not sort of checking back and making sure that our agenda is in line with um, what um, legislators are thinking. So I think we need to make sure that they know the direction we're heading and and supportive. Um, so I think that's going to be a part of how I spend my time. Well, I certainly don't want you to get out and tell me something that your boss doesn't know yet, but I'm glad to know it's on your mind. I feel it's always important in a setting like this. I'm sorry if I inadvertently revealed your age at the outset, although, you know, HICFA predates uh, the internet. So if people Google HICFA, they probably can't even figure out when you started your career. But I hope that at least some of our audience here are earlier in their career than I am. And I wonder, again, I just think you're in such an interesting position right now and you got here through such an interesting pathway. Uh, what advice, I know it's a hackneyed question, but I still am going to ask it. What advice would you give someone early on who's looking at what you're trying to accomplish and says, I'd like to be there someday? What, what, what advice would you give them? I guess I would say there are so many places in healthcare and health policy where you can make a difference. And, and one of the I think the trajectory of my career, I've always wanted to be in a place where I felt like I was making a difference and having an impact. And um, whether it's in the administration, whether it's on the Hill, whether it's working for one of these groups that has an interest in healthcare, I think um, there's a lot you can do to have an effect um, on our health system. And I think, you know, goodness knows we need to make improvements. I think, uh, you know, this trajectory of spending and, and potentially facing um, a solvency issue in the Medicare program, uh, we need good minds. Uh, if anyone out there is interested in applying to CMMI, please send me your resume. Uh, we're interested and we have, we have spots open and I know my team could, could use good smart people who wanna make a difference. Um, yeah, I think what's motivated me is is really trying to, to make change and make change for the better. And can you just do a footnote? Because so many people associate that kind of change with government and government service, but you have worked in other settings as well. And just say a little bit about what it means to be an advocate for change when you're not in a public policy setting. Well, I think, you know, most companies and a lot of organizations have policy um, functions. And so in the two uh, private companies I've worked for, I was head of their public policy department. Um, most recently at Johnson & Johnson led the global health policy team, which was one of the most interesting jobs I've had because it was global in nature and um, really got to think about how, um, and, you know, this was a company that's interested in doing good in the world and um, wanted to, to see if there were ways of um, expanding access and coverage in, for example, emerging markets. Uh, so I got to travel around the world and learn about other countries' healthcare systems. And I had spent time working in Germany for one of the sickness funds in a previous part of my career and working for the British National Health Service in another previous part of my um, background. But But to see it up close and now and more recently, and I think there's a lot of interesting jobs out there that um, you know, I think there's lessons also that we could learn that we're probably not learning uh, from other systems um, that might be worth 
exploring. Well, Liz, it's always been a pleasure having you as a colleague. I'm so grateful for you uh, being our first guest on our new series on Policy Spotlight. Uh, I wish you best of luck in your job, and I sleep better knowing that someone like you is in it. Um, there's so, as you say, there's so much work to be done. There's such a need for innovation and change. And I thank you for taking on the task of leading that part of the federal government's efforts these days. It's a big task and I wish you all the best with it. Uh, thank you, Liz, for joining Thanks, me. Alan. I was really flattered to be asked. So um, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'll see you uh, sometime soon. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.